Hi guys, and welcome to the Loop podcast. So today I'm going to be talking about effectively measuring marketing activity with uh, Ben Dutta, who is Chief Strategy Officer with Power Digital Marketing. Um, my name's Liam, and I'm VP of Marketing here at Cognizant. So Ben, great to uh, to meet you. Um, so we can introduce you properly to our listeners. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about Power Digital Marketing and what you do as Chief Strategy Officer there? Yeah, absolutely. So Power Digital is a growth marketing firm. So we kind of combine four pillars of our business, uh, which is strategic consulting, data intelligence, deep tactical and technical expertise in every paid, owned and earned channel, and then our proprietary technology, which we call Nova. And so the combination of those four things, uh, we cater to brands from $5 million in revenue to $95 billion in revenue. Um, so quite a wide range, but the vast majority of our clients are probably in that 20 to $100 million of revenue and definitely focus more on direct to consumer and getting their go to market ready, getting all of their uh, measurement frameworks ready. But we have an intense focus on B2B and actually a good good segment of our business is B2B, about 10% of our clientele. So, and we're, we're actively growing that. My role here really is, is quite simple. It's to make our clients money. My number one KPI is how much money clients were earn working with Power Digital. And so the ROI on our relationship and then the kind of health check that we do as a basis is what does our typical client see in terms of year over year revenue growth? So last year in 2023, of our clients, we averaged about a 24% revenue growth year over year. And that was in a pretty challenging market. So I was, mm -hmm. I'm very proud of that number, um, given the state of, of at least the US economy, maybe less so the world, but mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's my job is to really oversee strategy for our business, for our clients' business, and how can we make them more money? Awesome, how does the proprietary tech work? I'm just kind of interested in, yeah. Uh, um, since yeah, so it's a cool name. <laughs> it's sort of an ecosystem. Yeah, it's and uh, we use a lot of like star terminology, like Nova and Constellation and Horizon and things like that. But it's sort of an ecosystem of different modules that are all focused on uh, either operational efficiency for us, so making our work faster, getting to a common question easily and quickly. So I'll give you an example of that. Um, we used to many years ago make our contracts by hand, like most agencies. Mm -hmm. And so when clients would come to us, we would hand write out a contract from templates or whatever and go back and forth with them. Now Nova creates the contract for us and then a human edits it. And that contract is based on a lot of our uh, diagnostic work that we do. So clients connect their data into Nova. Mm -hmm. We have a tech enabled team. So Nova does some of the work human does some of the work. They go through hundreds of questions and diagnostics around, is their unit economics make sense? What's their profit margins look like? What's their incrementality of their media mix model? All of these different elements and it scores them. And then it comes back and it says, we think that this is a critical priority for, for you and our scope of work would cost this and do this and, and entail these activities. These other things are nice to haves and these things are things we wouldn't recommend. And so being able to tech enable that process has allowed us to create 
highly customized, highly effective contracts and proposals for our clients in a matter of hours rather than weeks going back and forth. And so that's just one example. So that's half of the, of the equation. The other half is we do have a growing list of client facing modules. So mm -hmm. some of those things that we use internally to diagnose problems uh, for our clientele, clients have somewhat direct, but indirect kind of assisted access to that information. Mm -hmm. So they plug in their data, their customer data, their media data, their web analytics data, and we can provide them benchmarking. We can provide them health metrics, things like that. And we're, we're growing that list. That's a newer addition. Mm -hmm. um, we're growing that list of client facing deliverables every day. Okay. That's really cool. Good to know. Yeah. It's interesting because when people say like tech enabled, obviously oh, it's my head. So it's always like, Ooh, what does it do? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've been working on it for seven or eight years now and, and really it was only last year, 2023, when we started making it more market facing. So mm -hmm. it's just been a lot of it has been internally, um, trying to keep us organized. It's how we manage our staff. It's how we do our talent tracking. It's how we do our, uh, financials. Like everything is through Nova. Awesome. It's, it's in, truly embedded in the organization then. Oh yes. <laughs> Inextricable at this point. <laughs> um, so to dive into our topic now, um, you posted on LinkedIn recently about how people who use uh, your methodology, your measurement methodology, saw an 18% uh, growth in revenue over those who didn't. Um, so for people who don't know what uh, the methodology is called, it's called the BEATS framework. Um, so can you share a little bit about what that framework actually entails and why you think it's had such a big impact? Yeah, absolutely. So well, part of the issue with measurement is right now, especially, is there's a lot of disagreement dependent upon the methodology, the data source, the, uh, you know, data integrity regulations. I know a lot of you, you are a, a UK based company and there's a lot more regulations in uh, the UK and Europe and as compared to um, the US, for example. And so depending upon your business type, your business model, your data streams, your regulations, etc. It's very likely that different platforms, whether it's paid media or attribution software like Google Analytics or some kind of third party MTA will tell you a story, they'll craft a narrative, an attribution narrative, mm -hmm. and that might disagree with another alternative method. And so what has developed, there's been a trend over the last several years towards uh, triangulation or diversified measurement. And that's usually looking at a combination of technological methods and scientific methods to come up with your own marketing effectiveness measurement protocol customized to the business, right? That's a, that's a, been a growing trend, especially in enterprise level businesses, but mm -hmm. it's becoming much more common in smaller companies as well, even seven figure brands, low eight figure brands. And so the challenge then becomes is let's say that I'm a, a smart uh, CEO and I know that I need MMM marketing mix modeling. Mm -hmm. I know that I need surveys. I know that I need some kind of tech platform to help me. And I want to try to figure out somewhere amidst all of this different types of data lies the truth. No one of them has the full picture, but they all kind of contribute to an overall story. So then the question becomes, well, which do you prioritize? And so the BEATS framework is really a hierarchy structure and it's an acronym. So B-E-A-T-S and no letter, 
and I'll get into what those are in a second, but no letter to the right can supersede a letter to the left. Mm -hmm. So B stands for business. Mm -hmm. So that's like your financials, your P&L, your revenue, your EBITDA, contribution margin, CAC, MER, whatever kind of business things the CFO and the CEO want to look at, right? What's that kind of like ground truth of how the business is performing? And that's first because it's the most important, right? That's the thing that trumps everything else. E is experimentation. And I don't choose that word lightly. I don't mean testing. I mean true scientific experimentation, which means that you have exposed groups and uh, control groups. And you're seeing, that's like incrementality testing. You're seeing what a real causal effect is from I'm introducing something new into this audience and I'm not introducing that same thing to this other audience. How, how do both of those audiences behave over time? A is analytics or analyses. That is your traditional uh, modeling, data science, causal impact analysis, media mix modeling, anything that I can sit with a spreadsheet and dice up numbers, that falls in the A category, right? And it's, it's usually retroactive, which is why it's weaker than an experiment because I may not have been able to control for all of the different variables, the external factors. Um, some more sophisticated analyses can incorporate those factors, but they couldn't necessarily control for them. I can't preclude them from my, my model. T is what most people live and die by, which is technological-based tracking. So that's think of Google Analytics, Salesforce attribution, whatever, some kind of system that says, Liam saw this ad, Liam went to this website, Liam made this purchase. Mm -hmm. That is a very fractured ecosystem right now, especially at a user by user level. And it's difficult to get reliable data. It's useful directionally, but you shouldn't make business decisions off of it. And the cherry on top at the end is S, which is surveys, which I always find very valuable, if not for measurement, for mm -hmm validation or some kind of confirmation of a hunch or a hypothesis or it tees up future questions and so <laughs> surveys could just be as simple as how did you first hear about us what made you decide to buy today whatever and having that zero party data where the person is voluntarily giving it to you is helpful to kind of tee up oh that's interesting i didn't think that um tiktok was that valuable to a b2b business but a bunch of people are saying they found me on tiktok well maybe i want to run an experiment of doing a paid ad strategy into TikTok, so it's a nice way to kind of feedback loop back mm -hmm. into the larger framework so if my attribution t is telling me that the roi on my paid ads is a 10x the roas is a 10x mm -hmm. and i'm increasing my spend because of that but my PL is getting worse <laughs> my revenue is flat and my cost is just going up and up and up something isn't adding up there mm -hmm. right? so the business has to take precedence over the technological tracking. And that's why we've been able to unlock that growth for a lot of our clients. They typically have historically relied on the technological-based tracking. Mm -hmm. They haven't been tying it back into things like contribution margin, LTV to CAC, and incrementality, which is why those first few letters are so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny that there are a lot of, a lot of companies and a lot of like I think previously historically people have pinned their metrics to something further down the line. I don't know, like an attribution or a metric that they can track in a like a piece of tech, uh, and then they've pinned them their targets to that metric, 
and then you can hit or exceed those targets uh, based on that metric. But actually, the business metric <laughs> is consistently getting worse or not improving. Um, and it's yeah, it's funny. I think I suppose actually, I was I'd be interested to know why you some maybe think that is like why we've like let's just say like the marketing qualified lead is a perfect example of that. But um, there's like yeah, or like there's a ton of different like metrics that you can measure that. Why do you think I think that do you think that that's happened and people have maybe neglected the fact that like neglected the fact of actually like that really we need to be looking at the bottom line business metrics. Do you think it's just because that those those testing those like technological metrics are easy to track and therefore people just assume all the rest and it's hard to do that. Um, I suppose that that almost like that extra data work to link it back to the business results or to other other aspects as well. Yeah, I think that a lot of it is uh, cultural mm -hmm. now. It's become, for the last 20 years, so standardized that a lot of people who are leading companies now or who are senior data leaders or senior marketing leaders, they've grown up in a time where that was the, that was the way to do it. That was the only way to do it. They never were in marketing at a company or in an era prior to deterministic tracking, individual user-based tracking, right? And so there's just been no other way. And so I think a lot of that is uh, culture and ignorance. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is a kind of, I don't want to say malicious, but an incentivized structure by certain ad platforms, especially mm -hmm. to give themselves as much credit as they can kind of get away with right and that's where like that the bad actors in the attribution space have long lived with the difference between something just being heavily trackable versus actually cause causal is mm -hmm. correlation is not causation right and so mm -hmm. what people see they're kind of lazy they see like oh yeah this thing is telling me of course i trust google of, tr of course i trust meta of course i trust this programmatic dsp whatever mm -hmm why would they lie? It's like, well, they lie. They're not like intentionally lying, but they are tracking that. And just mm -hmm. because somebody was shown an ad doesn't mean that ad influenced them in any way. So mm -hmm. it's just become a feedback loop where this is the way it's always been done. Things that are easily trackable get more credit mm -hmm. by its very nature. How would, how would an attribution system without taking into account some sort of survey data mm -hmm. be able to know that someone heard about you at an event mm -hmm. or talked to their friend. There's no technology in the world that would be able to capture that. So in any kind of technological based attribution system, it would never capture that. Mm -hmm. There's no way, unless we have some big brother thing where we're recording everybody's conversations all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, people start to say, well, I know that that's a thing. I know that's a thing that happens, but I can't control for that. So I'm, I'm gonna ignore it. I'm just gonna mm -hmm. look at the things that I can control and they've just sort of snowballed themselves down into this very, very tight ecosystem of these are the things I can track. These are the things I can move the needle on. Mm -hmm. And whole industries have grown up around that where people are incentivized to your earlier point, Liam, around this is my KPI. This is what I'm comped off of. I'm going to mm -hmm. man manipulate as much as I can to get this number as tight as, as possible. And it doesn't ladder back up to kind of like the one key business result. So it's a, 
it's an incentive misalignment, it's a cultural component, and it's a technological mm-hmm. limitation in many ways. I think for marketers, like it's a great story, all of the platforms that basically enable you to track something and try and show you that that one action led to revenue. It's a great story because all marketers fear that moment where someone, you know, where we're, you know, asked, well, how is this impacting revenue? And the reality is that there's a ton of stuff that you can't track and you just would have to admit. And then the rest takes a lot of work and you'd have to be like kind of piecing lots of things together and there'd still be lots of if, buts and whys in there. And I think that story from a technological point of being like, oh, well, don't worry about that. Just show them this. This is how you do it. It's like, it's, it's dreamy. It plays into like a lot of people's anxiety that they'd be able to just turn up to any meeting with C-suite and just like show them this is what we're going to do. And it's this one metric. And I just tell you how many of these we've got. And um, Bob's your uncle. We've got a, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're profitable. Um, but obviously. Well, and that's we, where the incentive yeah. alignment comes from, right? Is, is mm. it's if the, we see this all the time with agencies, especially in the States where they're incentivized off of ad spend. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that, that power is generally opposed to is because if you're incentivized off of ad spend, like I get a percentage of my media spend as a revenue from mm-hmm. my client, right? What does that make me want to do? Makes me want to spend more money. Makes mm-hmm. me want to spend more in advertising. Spending more in advertising doesn't necessarily contribute to the business. Mm-hmm. In fact, in many cases, it is a, an anchor on the business. Mm-hmm. It actually hurts profitability. It can negatively impact user sentiment. There's lots of cons to advertising. I'm not saying you shouldn't advertise, but mm-hmm. there's times where it's not the right tactic to deploy to mm-hmm. certain degrees. And so you get this uh, talk track in a lot of agencies and, and client relationships where the client says, well, they're just, they don't care about my business priorities. It's like, well, it's because you're paying them not to care. Mm-hmm. And so it starts with that incentive alignment where they should be paid. And this is why power pro- proposes our contracts the way that we do. They should be paid off of business outcomes. Mm-hmm. And then the agency will do everything in its power to influence those business outcomes. And it's very hard to refute revenue growth mm-hmm. or EBITDA calculation, right? It's not, but it's very difficult to justify, to your point, whether something was incremental or not. I don't need to justify incrementality of something if the revenue is exploding. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That conversation comes up when I'm asking for more money and the CFO is saying, well, wait a second. Ever since we hired you, your our contribution margin has shrunk every <laughs> single month. Why would I give you more money, right? So that's when the the anxiety comes in. It's because mm-hmm. they don't have the same goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned this like uh, before, I, I suppose, about every company having um, a different sort of measurement system and like thinking about how they would go about it. So. Something I'm kind of interested to hear is how you think measurement scales through different stages of growth. So, uh, like, could you give us some insight into what methods of method uh, measurement you think work then, I suppose, as organizations scale from, like, smaller organization to, like, a scale up, up to an enterprise? And are there any rules of, of sort of thumb that you'd follow there? Yeah, just to give an extreme example, right, let's say that you... Uh, you and I, Liam, we're going to become business partners, okay? Mm-hmm. And tomorrow we're going to go launch our new business. We have zero customers, zero revenue, zero anything. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go run some LinkedIn ads. And those LinkedIn ads are going to drive to a landing page. And the landing page is going to be really convincing. It's going to be a, a recording of this uh, video. Um, and they're going to say, wow, these guys are smart. Let's work with them. Give us our contact information. That advertising 
for that tiny business is very likely to be 100% incremental. Mm-hmm. We moved people from zero to one, and that is a huge benefit, a huge ROI potentially, depending on how much you spend on that business. So when you're little like mm-hmm. that, and I usually quantify it in kind of these breakpoints of um, like seven figures, meaning a million or less, or, mm-hmm. or you know uh, a couple million. Uh, eight figures being 10 plus million in, in dollars, right? It'll vary a little bit depending upon your currency. Um, and then usually like 50 million plus is sort of the next tier and then 100 million and beyond, right? And as you start getting into multiple hundreds of millions, you don't need to worry about incrementality when you're, or sophisticated measurement when you've got one product, one customer, one media channel, right? Like I don't need to worry about it. Is Am I making money? That's all I need to know. Mm-hmm. Great. Am I profitable or am I at a tolerable profitable matrix if I'm invest if I have investors? Cool. We're good. But let's say that seven million dollar company is trying to get to ten million dollars. Mm-hmm. They're right in that kind of high seven shooting for low eight, and they're on five or six channels. Well, at that time it might be interesting for them to look at a marketing mix model. It doesn't cost a ton of money. There's a lot of tools out there that are making it a lot more accessible. There's a lot of service businesses like Power that, that do it for low amounts of, of cost. And it can very quickly validate, well, hey, of your five channels that you're on, mm-hmm. two of them have a great ROI, but three of them don't have a very good ROI. And so maybe that, that business can very quickly pivot with a 10 or 20K investment. They can then cut some of the budget on those poor performing channels and increase the budget on the top performing channels, validate it through some sort of experiment. And they very immediately like double their revenue. And we see that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. But once you are, let's say you're 20 million to 50 million, then you have a baseline of repeat customers. Probably you have, especially if you're a B2B or a subscription based business, right? You have a baseline of people coming in through non-touched media. Mm-hmm. So they've seen your organic social content. They came to you through a uh, reference from a friend. They have some word of mouth knowledge about you. you. You started to make an impact kind of in the brand space, right? And it's very hard to track what was the single touch point or the single thing that actually influenced that person. And I would argue it's actually impossible to track that individual touch point. So mm-hmm. then that's when incrementality experimentation mm-hmm. really starts to come into the fold what is the benefit am I going to get from this event? Well, I'm going to run an event in this product category, but I'm not going to run an event in this product category. They're equal right now in terms of revenue for me, for my B2B business. The one I ran an event in six months later is growing faster than the one I didn't run an event in. That gives me confidence that events drive incremental return for me. Mm -hmm. And that's a very simple example. And once you're, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and, and beyond and, and billions of dollars of revenue, right? It's very, very challenging to get super granular, super precise measurement, mm-hmm. but almost all executives will want that. And so that's when like the beats framework starts to become very important where you're doing multiple tiers of measurement all throughout every kind of persona group, business unit, product category and you're trying to figure out through very careful experimentation we're going to tweak this thing over here but we're not going to touch it over here and then i'm going to track this cohort of customers and see over the next year what does that produce in terms of incremental impact to the business so it's slower more methodical when you're a little guy you can just sort of like 
<laughs> be agile and throw stuff out there and test fast and sloppy and get the mm -hmm. answer. But when you're a $50 billion a year company, which some of our clients are, it's extremely thoughtful and laborious to kind of get to an answer. Okay. So I, I suppose I want to pick this up again, like a bit from my understanding. So, um, and how I suppose it would work in like a B2B company. So incremental testing being the, to see if I've understood it sort of correctly from, from your examples, in, incremental testing is you're picking a certain channel or tactic and then testing out um, almost like testing out something new and then measuring it versus the old and then seeing if there's a change and then moving with that change if it's positive and doing that but across your whole marketing mix is that sort of correct yeah, yeah absolutely so in b2b let's just stick with that example right and let's stick with linkedin ads because it's mm -hmm. easy um mm -hmm. not everybody's going to run linkedin ads and not every business will find that they're incremental but let's just pretend that we're we're talking about a 10 million dollar a year business b2b business okay they service mm -hmm. clients they have a, a recurring revenue model and mrr model the incrementality method for that they say they spend a uh, million dollars a year on linkedin mm -hmm. they make 10 million in revenue they spend a million of it on linkedin that's their entire paid strategy the question invariably would would come from the CFO or somebody, hey, what is this actually driving for us, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we know that LinkedIn is, yeah, there's a bunch of attributed MQLs or whatever, but how do we really know that that's translating into incremental pipeline and therefore incremental revenue for us? So we would construct, we would analyze the customer data mm -hmm. and usually in B2B, there's some kind of named account list, right? ABM or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. There's some sort of priority account list or some sort of classification. Maybe it's a product type that you have. Maybe it's a, a vertical of businesses that you focus in. And then I would create as simple, but as clear groups as possible, a test group that I'm going to introduce something new into. So in this case, in this example, we've been running LinkedIn. So the new thing I'm introducing is turning it off. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna turn off LinkedIn in some group of, of potential clients, prospective clients, but I'm gonna keep it running in another group, right? And so let's say that this business sells, uh, they have a, you know, a technology line item and a consumer line item. I'm just making this up, right? And they're going, and they're they're both 50% of that brand's revenue. Mm -hmm. They're both five million a year, and they both spend equally. Currently, we're both spending 500,000 a year into each category. Well, for the next three months, I'm going to take all of my LinkedIn budget in the technology account list, all of my client prospective clients in the technology product that I sell. And I'm going to turn LinkedIn ads off, but I'm going to keep running LinkedIn ads in my consumer business or my, my other half of my business. And then we track the total business output. What's the actual total amount of clients won? What's the total amount of pipeline generated? What's the total amount of revenue generated over those next three to six months or whatever your consideration cycle is, right? If you're a, a service-based agency like Power, it's maybe six to 12 months. If you're a SaaS company, maybe it's two to three months, you know, whatever, they'll change dependent upon that but let's say it's SaaS. And so we're gonna wait three months and I'm gonna see after running no LinkedIn ads for three months, my business in that cohort has cut in half. Mm -hmm. And so it was gonna do five or uh, five million and now it's only gonna do two and a half million for the year, which would tell me, whoa, my LinkedIn ads have a huge mm -hmm. effect. Half of my business is coming from my LinkedIn ads. This is extremely incremental and I would do the math 
I would say, okay, I got two and a half million dollars of incremental revenue on $500,000 of spend. That's a 5x return. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's massive for me, for my business. That encourages me to actually spend more money on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I'm going to increase my budget overall, right? So that's the way that the incrementality, this is a very simplified example. It's more complicated than this in real life, but mm-hmm. for the sake of this show, that gives us confidence in that channel. Now, if the reverse was true, let's say we turn LinkedIn off and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we're going to keep this going indefinitely or for six months to see if there's ever kind of some sort of lagging or latent effect and still revenue is healthy, still revenue is good. Well, then as a marketer, I should feel glad. Hey, I just went and found the company. I just saved the company a million dollars. You can turn LinkedIn ads off and go and put that million dollars into something else. Maybe it's an event, maybe it's a BDR team, maybe it's Mm -hmm. more content or organic social posts or whatever. Let's go take that million dollars and reinvest it into something that is going to be incremental. And a marketer should be proud of that. That's a thing that they found and that they proved. It's not a failure. It's that mm-hmm. this channel doesn't work in this current deployment. Let's go fix that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it takes, uh, takes some guts to, to, to turn off like a big spend and potentially like, yeah, know whether, yeah, if you lose two and a half million in revenue, you'll, you'll feel that. But if you find a saving, then... Wow, you can come. Well, in that case, yeah, it's a good point, Liam, but just to interrupt you, in that case, if they saw like, oh my God, my pipeline is instantly mm-hmm. cratering, they can turn it back on. Yes. You don't have to wait the three months, right? Like that's that was the extreme example. Yeah. But you could, as soon as it's, you're like, oh my God, this is terrible. Just turn it back on again. Run it, yeah. you know, go back to how it was. You don't have to punish yourself no. for the sake of science. But I know if I found 500K of efficiencies or a savings and presented that to my CFO, I would be, right. I would be greeted with a, a big hug. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah that and that's that's the thing right i'm trying to i instill culturally at power and that i think the industry needs to move to is like the whole point of marketing is to make make the business money yeah 100 100 percent, so aligned with that and that yeah so i like like you said it's so important to be just targeted on revenue and 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 that be your be your north star um so i know you said about um like marketing mixed modeling earlier and talking about like obviously you get that once you get to a bigger stage right and you've actually got <laughs> we've actually got a, a marketing mix to to like figure out um so uh i know that there's some tools out there that sort of, sort of claim that they can like automate marketing mix modeling I've, I've seen loads of things like this where they'll kind of like suggest that they could where you should turn off a channel where you should put one on and stuff how do you feel about that is um and like, do you like, do those sort of things stand up normally? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and one that's hotly debated right now, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and even my opinion has continued to evolve. I think recently I, I made a, a comment that you probably don't need a media mix model, I think mm-hmm. was the title of my post. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was around uh, many of the brands that I talk to, whether they're D2C or B2B, they have so many Liam, I'm telling you, so many critical, urgent problems that they need to fix from their product to their go-to-market to their business model to who their customer is. Mm-hmm. Just fundamental 101 level things. Like, how did you get here and you don't know this basic <laughs> thing? It's like a level one thing. <laughs> that your marketing measurement, let's just say that you somehow unlock through media mix modeling, your marketing measurement ROI doubles. Mm-hmm. If it's still only contributing 10% of your revenue, who cares? Mm-hmm. 
if you actually could change your business strategy somehow or change, realize that you're going after the wrong audience or realize that you're priced terribly and change your offer and that could 2x or 3x your revenue in a year, wouldn't you rather do that than try to fiddle with, I'm going to tweak my media mix between these channels? I certainly would. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the type of stuff that I'm talking about, right? But let's just pretend and say that you're a business that everything is you have a very differentiated product. You've got a perfect customer experience. Your brand positioning is all tied in. Your ICP is well-defined, blah, 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 blah. Everything is good. MMM is a great way to retroactively look at what the potential contributed impact of different marketing initiatives were. And so it's, it's better than nothing. That's why I'd like to use it in the Beats framework. Mm -hmm. Is it as good as an experiment like we just talked about? Mm -hmm. No. But experiments don't look backwards. They only look forwards, right? So if I'm trying to get an assessment of over the years, especially if you're a B2B company, over the years I've done you know, 12 events, what has been the effect of those events? Can a model pick that up? Potentially. Mm -hmm. And so I think that having that uh, directional insight, not the answer, just the direction of what I want to explore is helpful, okay? Now, the tool to your comment around the tools, the machine learning based and how to optimize your media mix. They're okay. You know, power mm -hmm. has one. Uh, there's a bunch of, I won't name them all off, but there's a bunch of tools out there that do it right. It's nothing mm -hmm. that special. They're mostly AI driven. They're most or machine learning to be more specific. They're mostly some kind of based on uh, either Bayesian or frequentist techniques, which are both fine models to, to do. The problem is, is that they often are very limited in terms of what inputs you can give them. Mm -hmm. So they don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. and it's just math at the end of the day. And so if you give a computer an equation and you don't have all the variables in the equation, it's going to spit out the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. And so more often than not, it's not a function of actually running the model that's hard. It's a function of organizing all of the data and all of the variables that could potentially get you an accurate answer that's the hard part that requires change management that requires data hygiene mm -hmm. that requires kind of commitment from the executive and leadership team to go down this journey right so it's less about the tooling and that's the last 10 percent of the journey the the bulk of the work is in well to make this model insightful i need a b c d e f g all the way through z data points and mm -hmm. i need to really in-depth understand the business and yada 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 so is it nice to have? Yes. Should it be used as irrefutable proof to make decisions? No. Mm -hmm. Are there ways that you can do it wrong? Absolutely. Are mm -hmm. there ways you can do it right? Absolutely. So unfortunately, it's a nuanced answer of it depends, right? Mm -hmm. But I think in general, it's better than relying on a tech-based attribution platform, mm -hmm. but it's never going to be as good as true causal controlled scientific experimentation. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. I think these things can just all be set up to, the thing is, if, if you don't go back to the basics about what you're, how you're like experimenting and what you're measuring, it's just going to measure the wrong things again, because that's what we're exactly. like telling it to do, right? It's, it's gonna, it, it doesn't have its own like free will and foreign aid, whatever you put in comes out again. So it's like, yeah, um, that's what I've always found with them as well. Uh, I suppose, um, working like in the agency you get like a view on a lot of companies and how they're managing me measurement what would you say are the most common mistakes and pitfalls that people tend to fall into and how can they go about avoiding them 
Yeah, it's a really good question. I think number one is is cultural. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and I, it's a corny thing for me to say. A lot of people are rolling their eyes right now, but it's true. <laughs> if you don't have a company commitment from the board down to what at power we call a growth mindset, but take your pick, right? A, a student mentality where I'm here to learn. I'm here to improve myself. If you start to become, to your, use your earlier example, afraid <laughs> to propose an idea or to uncover that you're not actually making an impact, that's poison. And no amount of measurement and no amount of good science or media mix modeling or whatever will uncover that if you have people at the company culturally who are unwilling to use it. I can't tell you how many times, Liam, I've seen a brand. We do a really great experimentation design. We do incrementality testing. We back it up with marketing mix modeling, all the best practices, right? And we, we come and we do this big presentation, whatever, whatever. And then the CEO kills it because we didn't do a good job of explaining it or that CEO didn't have the right uh, mentality at the time to, it, it challenges everything that they're doing to such a degree that you're calling the baby ugly. And mm-hmm. they're like, no, you're wrong. I know this business. We're gonna continue to go off of my gut or off of my hunch, right? And like sometimes really good business leaders have a great gut and I don't wanna refute that at all. That's mm-hmm. important skill to have but more often than not, I see it the other way. And so it really is important to have company buy-in and a cultural commitment to, we are willing to be wrong. We are willing to make mistakes. That's where learning comes from. Mm-hmm. And then if you can learn, then you can improve. Mm-hmm. And if you're measuring that along the way, you are recording what is working, what is not working, and the amount of stuff that you mess up shrinks mm-hmm. over time. So that's the number one thing that's important. More tactically, is data hygiene, data fundamentals. So like my earlier example with, you know, the quality of an MMM is only gonna be as good as the data that you feed it. Mm -hmm. If you have sloppy tracking, if you don't have good clean financials, if you don't have good uh, promotional calendar or offer calendar or when you release new products or when you did experiments or when you tested something or that, you're never gonna, how how could you measure that, right? Mm -hmm. And so you need to kind of commit to a, sequence of organized tracking and organized data management. So having a clean CRM, having a clean historical media plan, having a clean historical experimentation roadmap, these things that are kind of fundamental to running the business. And a lot of businesses, frankly, just don't even have, I mean, so many, we, we plug into their P and L and they're like, they don't even track costs. Mm-hmm. And we're just like, what? How, how are we going to be measured against EBITDA or against contribution margin if you half of your costs aren't even factored into your, P- you know? So there's just like, that's where it's always sort of an order of operations of, you got to get the business fundamentals first, get the tracking dialed in, get the culture dialed in, and then you'll be able to commit moving mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, makes sense. Like you need to actually have a culture of where you can actually test and do something new rather than just being stuck to committing to what we've always done because doing something new might go wrong. And you also need to actually have all the data there to measure. Otherwise you, well, yeah, where can you start? You like, you, you have to have that. So I suppose having those two sides, the human side, and then also the actual data side is, yeah, is essential. Exactly. Otherwise you just keep making the same, same decisions on the same data over and over again. Um, love that. And you highlighted in a post recently how there's one easy and powerful way to positively influence lifetime value. Could you explain a little bit of your thoughts on this um, and why you why you think it's so commonly overlooked? 
yeah, uh, the poster referencing I, I talked about, just just increase your prices, right? <laughs> and so uh, it's very simple, right? It's the it's the seize candy strategy. I don't, for those of you that don't know, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, RIP, and the seize candy strategy, right? They did nothing new. They did no product innovation. They did no capital investment. They did nothing new. All they did was increase their price every year by 10% mm -hmm. for 50 years. And that company has grown many, many multiples over the years, right? It beat every stock and beat every market. Like they did nothing new. They've literally the exact same product since the seventies to now. And it's been, they've just been increasing their prices. So a lot of times in B2B, especially mm -hmm. we get really focused on trying to compete on price. And if you've ever worked in a sales team or, or any kind of revenue org, one of the common trainings is there's no such thing as a price objection. It's that you failed to instill enough value, right? Mm -hmm. And so increasing your price and then having the supporting sales mechanisms, the supporting product quality mechanisms too, which is buyers aren't stupid, by the way, the, mm -hmm. they, the, you, you, you get what you pay for and buyers know that, right? And so it, you can't really pull one over on them. So you have to have the credibility to back it up, but increasing your price dramatically will increase your revenue because it gives you more margin. It allows you to play with negotiation. It allows you to position yourself in a more premium light. Psychologically, customers are more willing to commit to something that they've invested a higher dollar amount mm -hmm. into because it's less of a frivolity and more of something that this, it's kind of painful. And so they want it to work. You get more buy-in from that. You see that a lot from like, free trial based SaaS businesses where they just have enormous churn, very low conversion from free to paid. But if you do like a paid trial, you have a much higher sticky rate. Right. And so like, there's just this sort of element of people forget about price because they're just constantly thinking, how can I improve my product? How can I improve my sales? How can I do this? How can I do that? How can I measure my media? It's like, just increase your price 10% every year. And you're going to probably increase your revenue 5% every year, just from that alone. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. I think this is, a, yeah, definitely one for us to be uh, thinking about at Cognizant. We're thinking about all of our <laughs> pricing and packaging all the time at the moment. So uh, we'll take this one away. Um, and for uh, B2B companies, what do you think the future holds in terms of measurement, I suppose, given everything we've talked about? Um, what will the most successful companies be doing five to 10 years from now? Yeah, I mean, at this speed that the way that AI is evolving and the way that regulations are accelerating, uh, I can't even begin to speculate five years in the future. <laughs> I can tell you two years in the future, maybe. Yes. I think in the next couple of years, we'll see a significant shift in uh, probabilistic measurement of all kinds. So that's marketing mix modeling, media mix modeling, incrementality testing, cohorting, more... Uh, less individual user tracking and more kind of grouped user tracking, right? Whether it be from technological limitations or regulatory limitations, you're going to have to play along. So the companies that we already see today that are doing well are committing to what we sometimes refer to as low resolution, but high accuracy. So they're not super granular, but they're accurate mm -hmm. forms of measurement, like what we've been talking about on this whole show. And those things are what's driving the business forward, less so oh, was it this ad or this ad or was it this day or was it that day? That level of micro kind of granular tracking, a lot of people are obsessed with that and it's a waste of energy. And it, it's only been possible for a very short time. In, this, in the time that marketing and sales have existed as a discipline, this sort of deterministic attribution tracking has really only existed for about 15 years. Mm -hmm. And so 
in the future, it's not going to be an option. So if you want to get ahead of the curve, start doing that now because in another year or two, it, it's not going to be available. And some people will disagree with me. Some people will say, Ben's wrong. And there's, you know, UID 2.0 and fingerprinting and IP matching and blah, blah, blah. All those are workarounds, right? All that is just loopholes that will get closed eventually. Just cut the cord now and start committing to real incremental business outcomes rather mm -hmm. than trying to track every single little interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think you're right. I personally agree. And I think that's the direction it's going in. And, um, and also that we just, you know, fat, like can see that just tracking every individual outcome and, 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 and person is like, it doesn't always lead to the best decisions anyway. So it's like, we can happily ditch that and move back to like, really, it's kind of going back in my mind and back to actually focusing on those business outcomes and, and how we can do that um, better without having this over-reliance on being able to track absolutely everything, basically. Um, exactly. So final question, uh, and we'd love to end on this one. Um, what's one thing you tell marketers to stop doing right now? And what's one thing you tell them to start doing based on what you're seeing happening in uh, the marketing field right now? Yeah, I mean, to give it a little something different uh, rather than the obvious answer of measurement, right? I think that a lot of marketers are very in love with small optimization changes. There's this sort of like theory of, you know, the 1% better every day. That's great. Like we all need to make small little step changes and, and those things can have a big impact for sure. But I think what it does is it trains people to think too small. Mm -hmm. And so I would stop trying to obsess you know, lose the forest for the trees, basically. And stop trying to obsess over how can I make this keyword get a 10% better cost per click? And that will have a 1% better cost per click average across the whole account. And that will drive a 0.1% better ROAS across the whole marketing. Like, who cares about 0.1% better ROAS? Unless you're a $50 billion company and that's a material amount of money, mm -hmm. go for it. But for most people probably listening to this are not at that size, in which case, think big. Mm -hmm. Stop being so obsessed with lots of little things and try to tie it back to what if we did this whole new idea that we had? What if we went into after a whole new angle or went after a whole new audience or a whole new way that, that we were messaging and really try to understand from the customer's mindset cracking into that new customer? how that could have a much larger impact on the business. The Stanley Cup, it's, I know it's D2C and not B2B, but the Stanley Cup example is the one I keep going to, right? Mm -hmm. Very, uh, not the hockey thing, but the, the insulated water bottle, right? Mm -hmm. uh, very mature, stable business for decades. They crack into a new channel, TikTok, a new audience, young women, and a new style of product, this kind of cute aesthetic bottle that they have or, or cup that they have, and they 10X their revenue mm -hmm. in two years. And it wasn't from some little micro optimization that somebody made in their meta algorithm or somebody made in their sales process. It was a total revolution in terms of how they go to market. And so that's what I want marketers to think about. Mm -hmm. That's the stuff that makes famous businesses successful, mm -hmm. not I got 5% better click-through rate year by year. That's, yes. No one cares about that. Okay, love it. Uh, so... I suppose that would be something to stop and start, actually. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you nailed that in one go. Um, well, great. Thanks, um, thanks, Ben. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, it's been great. I feel like I've learned a lot, and I hope everyone listening has, has learned loads too with it. So um, 
yeah, appreciate it and really nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. I've been happy to be here and love talking about this stuff. Probably too much, so appreciate <laughs> the time and the attention. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Catch you later.